This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm not going to call her the name I want to call her because now we'll screen, grab it, and it'll be on the future report tomorrow. I'm Madison Malone-Kircher. And I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to Eyes Who I Am I. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. Uh, before we get started, Madison, is there something you'd perhaps like to share with the class? Yes. Yes, I would, Rachel. So in our last episode, our spooky, spoopy Halloween spectacular, mm-hmm. I mistakenly identified a vine as being a clip from Project Runway. And it, in fact, was a clip from RuPaul's Drag Race. I deeply regret the error. How very dare. (laughs) Uh, I will say, however, to the one person who DM'd me over the weekend threatening to pull my gay card, I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. Just want to say, once and for all, that I do apologize to the Drag Race community. Don't hold your breath. There will not be a Notes app apology forthcoming. Well, while they're not holding their breath, is there anything else? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's go, Brandon. Who? Brandon. Brandon who? Star of the internet's latest meme. You know, Brandon. Does Brandon have a last name? Who are we talking about? (laughs) Okay. A couple of our listeners have asked that we explain the Let's Go Brandon meme that has uh, taken over in, uh, let's say, the last month. Uh, confusingly, Brandon is both a real person. He's a, uh, a NASCAR driver named Brandon Brown. But as far as the meme is concerned, Brandon is Joe Biden. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> what? Are- <laughs> Brandon Brown and Joe Biden are the same person? Let me take you back. This is my favorite kind of meme to explain because the takeaway at the end is, oh, I'm not missing anything. This is just really dumb. Oh, great. I was really worried I was bad at my job because I I still don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so at the beginning of October, Brandon Brown wins this NASCAR race and he's being interviewed on NBC. And Mm -hmm. in the background, (laughs) you can hear people at this NASCAR event shouting, fuck Joe Biden, fuck Joe Biden. And the host interviewing Brandon Brown is like, yes, you can hear them chanting. Let's go, Brandon. No. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the the crowd, let's go, Brandon. Brandon, I don't actually know if the host was, like, trying to pivot away from the fuck Joe Biden of it. Are you counting the syllables? I'm watching you count on your fingers. You know, yeah. Yeah, I was. I was. I was counting the syllables. (laughs) It's the same. It's four. Okay. (laughs) I just needed to check. (laughs) Uh, But since then, it has sort of taken off as, like, a censored way to say, fuck Joe Biden. Like, politicians on the House floor have said it. There was a Southwest pilot who, like, got in trouble for saying it over, like, the intercom from the cockpit on a plane. Just, it's, it's every, fuck fuck Joe Biden, let's go Brandon, has, uh, has taken over. Okay, so, I mean, based on the locale of where this meme originated, NASCAR, I'm assuming there's really two ends of the political spectrum that a fuck Joe Biden slogan could come from. 
I'm I'm assuming this is this is this is the right side of that spectrum. That that would be correct. I mean, it is very funny to me, right? Because it's I'm one of those lawn signs in this house. Uh, we we agree. Let's go, Brandon. But possibly for different reasons than uh, <laughs> this meme's origin. I just I mean, I'm glad that you said at the top that I shouldn't feel bad for missing this because this is definitely part of a realm of the internet that I have very carefully tailored my algorithmic experience to not include. It feels to me like a similar accidental workaround. Do you remember when Donald Trump, it was announced that Donald Trump had COVID? Oh God, that was the best day ever. Right. And people on Twitter, (laughs) you can say it. People on Twitter were tweeting the same number of asterisks as it takes to spell like, I hope he dies. Mm -hmm. I mean, on some level, it's it's funny, but on the other hand, it feels like a, a a means to escape being regulated on a platform. And so I that is a little scary to me. Just a bit. I mean, just thank NBC. Anyway, I think that's really all one needs to know about Let's Go Brandon. Well, great, because Let's Go Brandon is weirdly a perfect segue into our main topic for today. How are you going to make this leap? Today we're talking about Real Housewives of Potomac. <laughs> right. You, like Madison, might be thinking, Rachel, what the fuck does a MAGA slogan have to do with Real Housewives? To which I would say it doesn't really, but also it does. Because one of America's, in fact, I would say America's greatest art form, gave us both Make America Great Again and Real Housewives. And that art form is Madison's favorite topic, reality television. Okay, you got there, but like I'm I'm doing yoga. Like I'm <laughs> full on warrior two. Like my body is stretched to make that leap. I'm just keeping you limber. <laughs> it's true. I do love reality television. Uh, and you can tell that because the last time we talked about it on the show, I wasn't here. <laughs> Yes. In that episode, which was co-hosted by our producer, Daniel Schrader, we talked briefly about how social media has become the driving plot line of keeping up with the Kardashians. Rest in peace. But that's not true just of the now defunct E-Network series. On Real Housewives of Potomac, theoretically, the main draw is getting a kind of inside look at the politics and lifestyles of the Black bourgeoisie. And let's be real here. The plot lines about BBLs or Brazilian butt lifts and respectability politics and etiquette are simply sublime. (laughs) It's prestige television. But the thing is, if you're not, sorry, if you're not keeping up with the Instagram lies or the subtweets or the blog posts, you're missing out on, I would say, half of the show. Okay, Rachel, I am convinced that you could keep talking about Real Housewives for, A, as long as my computer battery is going to last and be possibly for all time. Uh, But after the break, we're actually bringing in a second expert. We're gonna be talking with Shamira Ibrahim, who is a excellent culture writer and critic who also does the Real Housewives of Potomac recaps for Vulture.com about the way social media functions on Real Housewives of Potomac. More on that after the break. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. All right, we are back, and I am ready to, to go to school and study up on the uh, Real Housewives of the Potomac. <laughs> Oh, Madison, you have so oh, no. much to learn. Lesson one, it's Real Housewives of Potomac. <laughs> oh, no. Drop the the, it's cleaner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lesson two for the uninitiated and Madison. The Potomac Housewives are a group of affluent black women in the DMV area. Importantly, not all of them actually live in Potomac, Maryland, but they include Giselle Bryant, Wendy Osefo, Karen Huger, Candace Dillard Bassett, Ashley Darby, Mia Thornton, and Robin Dixon. So since this season is just wrapped and we're heading into the reunions, we're going to be joined by someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Shamir Ibrahim. Shamir, we're so excited to have you on the show. I've been trying to think of a way to get you on here for months now. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Looking forward to the conversation. (laughs) Uh, Shamir, we're very, very glad you're here. Uh, But for our listeners, uh, could you please disclose your housewives bona fides? You, You are quite the expert. Yes, I am currently the vulture recapper for Potomac. I have previously also done Atlanta. I've unfortunately obsessively watched this franchise going back to college, which I will not disclose what year that is because <laughs> I wouldn't be that weird. Fair enough. <laughs> not unfortunate at all. Very fortunate for us because I remember when I first tweeted that I was starting to watch this show, it was like December of 2020 and everything was depressing. And I remember you tweeted at me, you were like, 
girl, you have to keep up with what's going on online. Otherwise, you're not really understanding what's going on with the show. Yeah. Um, one of the things I tell people a lot is that, you know, while I do look at Housewives and reality TV as escapism, I actually think it's one of the most fascinating examinations of human behavior because it's a lot of examining how people think about themselves, how they think people perceive them and how they think they can actually modify that. Right. And become their own level of like producers. And it almost never works the way they think it's going to work. Right. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it almost inevitably fails. But it's this sense of like self-agency and self-ownership and how people actually really perceive how they can navigate that. And there's the odd chance that it succeeds, but inevitably, like, people's true character comes out. And of course, there's like a heavy level of producing by the actual producers who work to manipulate their own narratives. But watching that level of tension of people trying to, like, bring out their own narratives on social media now and using every level of mediums they have available to them to create this whole arc for themselves while then their own persona like always defeating them by the end mm -hmm. of it. This season, like if you think about for Potomac, you have Candace Dillard Bassett, right? Who mm -hmm. at the beginning of this season, you know, coming off of the major conflicts between her and Monique, she was stepmom in charge. I want to be more comfortable in my bonus momness. And so far it's been a haze, but I'm figuring it out as I go. You know, okay. by the end of it, she's yet in another conflict, actually in several of them, and kind of reverting back to the same cadence that she was in last season. Candace? No, no. I don't give a Okay. I don't give a I don't, I don't. I promise you, you will. And it kind of just speaks to the nature of how reality TV kind of iterates over itself. Shamira, I love this idea that if you're not following along on, on social media, you're missing a large part of the plot of any given season of Real Housewives. But I'm curious how the inverse works. How does social media become an actual storyline on the show? It becomes plot line in the show in a couple different ways. One is it becomes a plot line in the reunions very heavily. Like mm -hmm. they talk about DMs and reunions and they talk, well, the reunions are like a very special kind of silo of how we talk about reality TV, mm -hmm. especially in Bravo, right? Because we talk about it as if like, it's like this alternate universe, right? Where things kind of get <laughs> expelled and then we never refer to them again, right? Like even in the universe of the season, they never say, at the reunion, right? They yes. say back in New York, right? Yes. Like you never actually <laughs> yeah. are allowed to say we were at a reunion. It's like when we were back in New York City, AKA mm -hmm. filming for 15 hours, right? And screaming yeah. at each other. Like, you cannot say Andy Cohen's name on the show or else something bad happens. <laughs> yeah, it's like we have to maintain the artifice of this being like a real organic experience. But that is where like we actually begin to actually navigate um, a lot of these interactions interactions. Then actually throughout the season, they'll start to intersperse like the artifice of people producing themselves, right? Mm -hmm. In the last couple of seasons, I became a lot more accepted, especially with accepting that a lot of the um, cast members were leaking things to blogs. One notable one in recent history was like in Real Houses of Atlanta, right? Where like the whole thing was basically constructed around like a leaked blog post about a stripper, right? That came mm -hmm. to a party. And that was the whole buildup to it. So this kind of happens where now when there are like very caustic personas like in Potomac who are known for like their very aggressive social media personas, 
they will show kind of that interaction and how that affects things. The problem kind of becomes that Potomac specifically is a show that is very layered in coded racial conversation and coded intraracial conversation that doesn't necessarily easily translate to people who are not Black. So while there are some things that are very explicit, like, okay, Candace called Ashley a bed wench, right? I think even if you're not Black, you could get that that is something that is very out of bounds to say to someone who is a Black woman. But like there are other things that are like not necessarily explicit to really discuss. Like I've tried to discuss in like, you know, my recaps that are not necessarily e easy to tease out. And these are hard conversations to have with white audiences while are kind of more implicit within Black communities. I mean, that's incredibly smart and just really kind of gets to the point of like the um, reunions and social media as separate from the actual show. I feel like those are mm -hmm. the only places where the kind of undercurrents that you're talking about get discussed, like the respectability mm -hmm. politics and the colorism and the kind of divide between like the Jack and Jill Blacks and the new mm -hmm. money Blacks. Those are the only spaces that right. those conversations are happening. And I think the big thing with Potomac as well is that the like reality blog world, you know, like that underbelly is dominated by black and like black queer people. And so because like those like places, like if you think about B. Scott, right, you think about Funky Dineva, think about all about the tea, lipstick alley message boards, all of those sorts of like connections and those connective tissues are mostly viewed as either run by Black people or Black-coded in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And Potomac as a community and as a show is a Black show, right? There's a level of connection there that is very intimate, right? So those narratives are coming well before the show starts. First of all, I'm simply shocked that gossip blogs, a good and fun and messy thing on the internet, were, were created by Black and queer people. Go figure. <laughs> I, who, who could believe that a great part of the internet... <laughs> had nothing to do with white folks. Uh, Shamira, do you feel like social media can help the white audience that you're describing keep up with the racially coded parts of the conversation on the show? I do think it would help create a shorthand for some things because I think Potomac and Rachel, keep me honest here, um, I think it exploded as a fan base last season, right? Like so many people mm. jumped onto it after there was this huge fight, right, between yes. Candace and Monique. And now there are a lot of people who are coming in fresh, who have, may not have necessarily watched from the beginning. And so there's a lot of, like, new perspectives to an audience that is not necessarily, like, in tune to a certain kind of Black community, which is different from Atlanta and Married to Medicine in the sense that they have a perceived level of respectability, right? Um, but, you know, there's, like, this level of, like, grandeur and like performance and how they needed to present things but now they've kind of put themselves in the position of like having this new fan base is like heavy camps and um yeah like to shorthand some of these things would be appreciated in some ways right it's not always going to give you like a full level of like lexicon about everything you're still going to miss some gaps that's natural but i can give an example one time i did try to mention in a recap yeah colorism is a thing but like it doesn't completely exonerate candace from like all of her behavior and like i accidentally caused like a ruckus in the vulture <laughs> comment section say more say more <laughs> well i think people thought i was trying to say that like candace had validity to like her tantrum. And then I got like a litany of, of responses, which I only check 
every so often, but it happened to be Indigenous People's Day. So I happen to have some time, right? <laughs> and I just saw, oh, I just don't understand what color has to do with her being a bad person. And I was like, oh no, I might've done something wrong. Here. Oh, <laughs> like, no. And so the, it was one of the rare times that I went in and explained myself where I was like, okay, listen, all I'm trying to say is colorism is a thing in the way that racism is a thing. It's always going to exist. Like Candace will bring up colorism like online or I think she brought it up at the reunion or maybe Wendy did at some point. One of them brought it up yeah. during the reunion. And that's what's kind of fascinating to me as like Real Housewives of Potomac as a franchise is that I feel like more than Atlanta, it gets into, like you were saying, the intra-community dynamics more than anything else. And that's what I see discussed most often online, which mm-hmm. is a product of the social media experience I've curated for myself. Right. But I'm always just curious as to what white people are seeing when they're watching this show right. and how much is just flying under the radar right. and how much it's like Bravo or any of the cast members' responsibility to just be like... Well, actually, there's an organization called Jack and Jill. Uh, This is your friendly neighborhood white audience surrogate uh, asking, uh, could we describe when you're talking about Jack and Jill, the organization, a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It had to be asked. I I knew the reaction it would incite. (laughs) No, no, no. It's fun. It's not that it, it shouldn't be asked. It's just like. How could we describe it in a way that's not going to immediately piss people off? Um, Okay, so on Wikipedia, it says that (laughs) Jack and Jill is a leadership organization formed during the Great Depression, formed in 1938 by African-American mothers with the idea of bringing together children in a social and cultural environment to create a medium of contact for children, which will stimulate growth and development. Rachel's head is just in her hands at this point. (laughs) Separately, there was a book that was written in, I believe, the 1990s by Lawrence Otis Graham called Our Kind of People. A banger. A banger. (laughs) (laughs) Which is essentially him as a person who grew up in like a um, community of people with names and how they looked at class before race. And... Potomac tends to actually kind of mirror some parts of that in a way that blows up into the Bravo universe because Potomac is kind of like the Jack and Joe Blacks. Rural House of, of Atlanta is kind of just like the regular Blacks on like campus, right? In the quad, right? And so it's like kind of the different parts of like Black digital and real life. And like all of them are kind of trying to put out one narrative of themselves. But at the end of the day, you only reflect back like who you are, no matter how hard you try to be one thing or the other. The divide that you're getting to between Jack and Jill Blacks and kind of everybody else, kind of going back to Madison's question about whether the online discussion will help white people understand what's going on on the show. I feel like it doesn't at all because that kind of nuance is getting lost between like the conflict between Candace and Monique was kind of Jack and Jill versus like Monique who grew up kind of rough and was like now had money, but did not know, like, the proper etiquette. And so when you get these new viewers coming in because of the fight, you're they're missing all of the kind of social context that I think if you're keeping up with, like, the Black audiences talking about it online or, like, the blogs or even, like, recaps written by Black writers, like, half of the show is getting lost in translation. Right, because if you remember, after the fight, the first thing she said is, you're a hood rat and you're fired. And, like... 
Monique is like a regular around the way chick, but she's not a hood rat, you know, mm-hmm. like she's just, you know, on around the way girl. Right. Yeah. But like, how do you explain like the nuances of that insult and why she's able to get away with calling Monique that specifically because she's brown skin? And like, you have to be like deep in the recesses of black Twitter, right. To like search and cope through the hashtag and figure that out. This reminds me of one of the questions I had, which is, do you think it's fair game for all like, I mean, Robin's brought up blog posts. Giselle's brought up blog posts at this point and every single time it gets brought up the other person is always like how dare you bring this onto the show but it's 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 driving the show at this point Rachel can I ask a question about your question yeah and both of you could answer when you say (laughs) that cast members act like bringing up these blog posts is sacrosanct like you're not supposed to do it are they just supposed to pretend the internet doesn't exist on the show well there was a time when they kind of did until like everybody was really, really bored during quarantine and everybody started going on Instagram live. And then all the girls were just beefing with each other all day, every day, right? Until apparently Bravo actually had to tell them to intervene and said, you guys have to stop. Because Whoa, they were I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, like it was getting a little aggressive. Like all of them were literally hopping on Instagram live. So that was when like fourth wall breaking kind of became big on this show. But it wasn't ever really standard to be like blog posts to be published everywhere. That wasn't ever really normal. So then after that, like on Potomac, they just started to become more like, well, fuck it, on the blogs and said this. It's on the blogs <laughs> and said that. There's something like quaintly analog about gossip blogs becoming a character on a show again. To me, that feels like like the Gossip Girl era when they, they all <laughs> right? get into like fake gawker blogging. <laughs> And the funny thing is, on the gossip, like, the gossip blogger side, as someone who's, like, spoken to a couple of them, like, there's this idea that, like, they're getting paid, as in, like, transactionally paid. Mm-hmm. And they're not. Not really, right? Like, you know, a lot of the casters are like, oh, yeah, you know, Monique is paid the, like, paid XYZ mm-hmm. person to, like, you know be on their side of like they're not really getting paid they get distracted by like a, you know association and quote-unquote parasocial relationship the same way that anybody else does so the person who they've been writing about regularly the second they start paying them a, t- a little bit of attention Monique sends a few essential oils right you know like building that level of relationship but then all of a sudden they feel like they have a relationship with a celebrity right mm. you know and that builds a level of affinity so then all of a sudden it's I know from an inside source right that xyz this thing happens, right? So it's not that Monique or whoever is actually paying them to give them favorable stories. It's that they feel like they've built a kinship with someone, right? It is, in fact, cheaper to just be nice. <laughs> they don't have to pay $1,000. So we've gotten into a lot about the ways that the differences between the kind of Jack and Jill set and the new money set plays out on Twitter and on the show. But Instagram, the most visual of all mediums, probably is where you can see it more clearly, right? Yeah, I think it's kind of started to blend a little bit more in recent seasons, but in the earlier seasons, you saw it a lot more. Like we can compare, for example, Real Houses of Atlanta versus Potomac to see a, a, the most distinct blend, right? Mm. Um, someone like Karen Huger, who, you know, she has her little grand dame brand, <laughs> right? Um, her whole kind of aesthetic, while it is around like big gestures, it's still around the idea of homemaking, right? Like the family mm. unit. Whereas someone like Marlo Hampton, it's about flaunting and ostentatiousness. It's like, look at the brands I have. Look at the labels I own. Look at all the coach bags I have. Look at where I step out to. Don't worry about who's buying it for me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of the whole like soft launch partner thing, right? There's a, <laughs> you know, big man in the background who's sponsoring me and you don't have to worry about who it 
is. Yeah. Like that's the kind of like distinction between the aesthetic and how they interact with each other. Like the idea is like wholesomeness and like, you know, presentation versus the whole like we're out we're stepping out we're in demand and vip where we go out like karen huger does not care about whether or not she's going to be at stadium right <laughs> that's not that's not the vibe that she's trying to give off right honestly i kind of wish it was the vibe she was trying to give off but i have one last question for you and it's a very it's the most important question mm-hmm. what the fuck is up with giselle's tiktok oh my god honestly <laughs> i love giselle I will say this. I actually really think, as much as I've talked about Giselle being a light-skinned, like, green-eyed bandit and villain, I actually do think Giselle seems like a great mom. (laughs) No, she does. The way her kids talk to her, I'm like, oh, you know, like, they, like, that's a good relationship. Like, (laughs) like, her kids literally tell her, like, she is, like, a mess every single week. And Mm -hmm. she's like, I receive that. But, like, yes. I say that as, a like, a way to transition to her TikTok, which is, like, one of the most amazing things, like, I've ever seen. Because, like, to give, like, a comparison, like, Ashley Darby has a TikTok, which is, like, basically her dancing to Doja Cat songs. But Giselle, like, honestly, it's high art. Like, <laughs> by Giselle Bryant on TikTok, it is literally just, like, her, like, just pointing the camera at herself to, like, poorly synced songs and it's also like <laughs> song trends that are like four months old you kind of have to just like decide what part of the tiktok speaks to you most like oh the <laughs> mug that she pointed to in the middle of the of the collage <laughs> the random plant that she decided to pin it to like yes mm-hmm. it's like, really like a choose your own adventure and in the back of your head you just know you can hear her children like looking at their tic- like looking at her tiktok and being like what the f- what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, it's very much giving, like, mean girls, like, Amy Poehler, I'm a cool yes. mom. Except, yes. like, the thing is that Giselle is, like, in some ways too beautiful to make fun of. Like, so you're just, like, wow. Like, yeah. this is what happens when, like, no one tells a light-skinned woman that, like, she's not making sense. <laughs> like, like, it really, like, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just bizarre. Well, that is all of my questions. So I could talk about Real Housewives with you for quite literally 24 hours straight. (laughs) I'm sure we'll do it again soon enough in person. (laughs) (laughs) Please, yes. (laughs) Once again, that was Shamira Ibrahim. Shamira is a culture writer and critic and also the Real Housewives of Potomac recapper for Vulture. All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Saturday, so definitely subscribe. It's free, and the best way to never miss me talking about reality television. Speaking of upcoming episodes, November is National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo, and if you're using part of this mo to read your no, we'd love to hear about it. Send us a voice memo with the first line of your NaNoWriMo masterpiece, and we may use it in an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about us. None of y'all have hired a skywriter about us yet. I'm still waiting on that. You can also always follow us on Twitter, ICYMI underscore pod, which is where you can DM us your questions. And you can also drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader. Our supervising producer is Derek John. Forrest Wickman and Allegra Frank are our editors, and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. See you online. Or on the Potomac. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.